0: And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten, because this is Club Book. This podcast features Deborah Bloom at Dakota Public Library, Galaxy. Best-selling author Deborah Bloom is one of America's foremost science writers and one of only a handful to find publishing success writing about the history of science. Bloom's debut The Monkey Wars in 1994 grew out of a Pulitzer Prize-winning series she wrote for the Sacramento Bee about the ethical implications of primate research. Bloom's follow-ups demonstrate her research range, Sex on the Brain, The Biological Difference Between Men and Women in 1998, and Ghost Hunters, William James and the Search for Scientific Proof of Life After Death in 2007. Bloom's popularity grew still further in 2010, with The Poisoner's Handbook, Murder and the Birth of Forensic Medicine in Jazz Age New York. One review lauded The Pioneer's Handbook as a vicious page-turning story that reads more like Raymond Chandler than Madame Curry. Bloom's newest book, The Poison Squad, one chemist's single-minded crusade for food safety at the turn of the 20th century follows a similar vein. It tells a surprising, sometimes stomach-churning story of the unsung heroes we have to thank for today's food industry safety protocols.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here and, and to be talking about this book, which is a, hist- a history of science book that turned out to my surprise, to be incredibly timely. So I'm gonna start just by telling you a little bit about how I got interested in it. I uh, um, have been writing about things that are, will kill you for about a decade. <laughs> I know it makes me sound a little creepy, but I'm really interested in poisonous things. And so Poisoner's Handbook, which came out in, in 2010, uh, got, kind of got me started on that, and I stayed really fascinated in things that can kill you or or harm you or injure you. Um, And and in part because they're really interesting chemically. right? We live in a chemical world. I'm standing here inhaling chemicals at the moment. So the things that are bad for you, the things that actually harm you chemically are rare and devious fascinating chemistry. And so I became very fascinated with that after Poisoner's Handbook, I wrote uh, a, a column, an online column from the uh, New York Times called Poison Pen. And it was while I was working on that column that I heard about this experiment. I was interested, I'm always interested in the history of things. How did we get here? What was it that happened in the history of science that brought us here? And, and this is one of the weirdest experiments ever done by an American scientist because it involves. The hero of my story, Harvey Washington Wiley, makes a decision in 1902 that the only way to test dangerous additives in food is to skip animal research and just poison young workers for the federal government. And so the poison squad experiment is exactly that. He persuades young men in their 20s who work at the federal government to dine really dangerously on the popular additives of the day, which included things like formaldehyde. And these experiments set the beginning of us looking at food safety in a very different way and underlie some of the consumer regulations that eventually came today. And Wiley himself was one of the drivers of the first consumer regulation. So I want to then show you this picture. I think it's actually in the book too. So I'm going to do a low-tech thing here in point, Uh, but this is Harvey Wiley when he first came to the USDA in 1883. And this is his sort of merry band of chemists. And, And what you have to understand for the backdrop of this story is in the 19th century, we have no federal consumer protection regulations whatsoever. There is no FDA, there is no EPA, there is no Consumer Protection Bureau. The government doesn't protect consumers at all. And so the only agency in the United States that's interested in food safety or food quality is the Department of Agriculture because the Department of Agriculture is the only federal department that has any jurisdiction over food. Now, and, and Abraham Lincoln had started the USDA it was, and people forget this, but he was actually the person who started the USDA because he had grown up in a farm family and he felt that the federal government needed to have farmer representation at the national level. And within the USDA, which was tiny, there was an extremely small little group of chemists, the Bureau of Chemistry, and they tested, did all kinds of chemical tests related to agriculture. They didn't really look at food and whether it was safe or not, until Wiley comes in 1883. He had been a professor of chemistry at Purdue. Purdue had exactly six faculty members when he was a professor of chemistry there, um, including the one professor of chemistry who was Wiley. And Wiley was the son of a Uh, an evangelical preacher, his father was a conductor on the Underground Railroad um, in Indiana, where he was born, and so he had been raised in this very go out, do good, make a difference kind of way, and he started doing tests of food, uh, what I wanna say, I guess I should say not food safety, but he was looking at food fraud when he was in Indiana. And he did a lot of tests looking at things like honey and syrup, and in which he was able to show that for the most part, honey and syrup sold in Indiana was really corn syrup, dyed and labeled syrup or labeled honey. And there was such a industry in faking honey and syrup that they actually had particular companies that would make fake honeycomb that you could put into the corn syrup to make it look like honey. So he brought that to DC And he said, basically, if this is a problem in the state of Indiana, I'll bet it's a problem nationally. And so in 1883, he took this group of chemists. This is very 19th century, you don't see any women because women were not chemists in in the 19th century. And they uh, often could not even get into a chemistry program. So this is why these guys look exactly like this. But he took these guys and he said, let's look at everything. And starting in the 1880s, his department starts doing a national look at food quality in the United States. Um, And they look at everything. They look at dairy, they look at meat, they look at canned vegetables, coffee, spices, cocoa, you name it, they're looking at it. And I'm gonna come back to that because I wanna drop back just for a minute. This is from the cover of a book that was published in England in 1820 by a food chemist named Frederick Ackham. And and the reason I wanted to show it to you, partly I'm showing it to you because I love it, but partly because Frederick Ackham in in 1820 was saying food is really dangerous and we are putting poisonous chemicals into it, we are putting heavy metals into food, there's rampant food fraud, and one of the things that concerned him in particular was the use of, Uh, metals as dyes. So in the 19th century, before we came up with the kind of food colorings we use today, uh, two of the most popular food colorings uh, were uh, arsenic green and red and yellow were lead. So you had lead chromate to make yellow and red lead to make lead. And so a lot of times you would have instances where people would be poisoned by their confectionery, in particular. Green candy, red candy, yellow candy. And in fact, I have a lot of skeletons in this slideshow. This was a cartoon from England in about 1860s, and it involved a case in which, <coughs> it's actually a brilliant cartoon. There was a confectioner in Bradshaw, which was in Northern England, and they were mixing up a batch of candy. And what people tended to do a lot of times when they were making cheap candy is they would put a little sugar and then, a, and then they would use plaster of Paris to kind of thicken the candy. And what happened in this particular incident is the confectioner uh, had <laughs> a, a, case, a container of arsenic and a container of plaster of Paris almost side by side. And arsenic, this is white arsenic, arsenic trioxide, so it's two white powders. And in this case, the confectioner put arsenic into the candy instead of the plaster of Paris, and they killed several dozen children. And after that point, this was years after Ackham had first started saying we gotta do something about this, England passed the first food safety law. And this is about at 1860, it's years ahead of the United States, because in 1860, the US had not won food safety law. There were some states that um, did have food safety laws, uh, and they would some of them will surprise you, uh, at least given modern politics. Massachusetts, where I live, was one of the first, and it had a food safety law in 1880. But the other states that came in and really stood up for consumer protection were a lot of states that we tend to think of as red states now. So two of the states that really led the country in fighting for safe food were North and South Dakota. So, and Indiana passed a food safety law way before the federal government too. So you see a lot of these states in this time being much more progressive, right? And you see those states, if you really look, for instance, at, this is a slight side trip, sorry, but if you <laughs> look at uh, women's right to vote, you're going to see it in states like, I think Wyoming was the first, Montana. So not on the East, the educated East Coast, but on these new progressive Western states, you start seeing women getting the right to vote way before you see it in the more established states. So. Continuing with the candy theme, among the things that Wiley and his inspectors start looking at is candy. This is a picture that they took of a candy factory. This is before there's any kinds of standards for hygiene, safety. So this actually was a candy factory in the late 19th century. And this is a page from one of Wiley's inspectors' books. If you can read it, you'll see, again, my low tech pointing here. After eating of it, one child died. So this is, again, this very heavy use of dyes like arsenic and uh, red lead in candy. And and the thing that is so fascinating to me about this time in history is, this is a pre-regulatory era, right? There's no regulation. All of this is legal, so you have this moment where I am a manufacturer of candy, of food, of drink, and I really can do anything I want, right? I can do anything. And the government is never gonna tell me I can't because there's no laws to say that I can't. And so even though they go there and they're hunting down this incident in the United States where children are also dying of poisonous candy, uh, they can't actually bring any charges. But the next skeleton in my, Um, series of skeletons has to do with milk and I want to talk about milk because it's such a good case study of everything that is wrong with the food supply in the 19th century in this era. I'll tell you that one of the things that was surprising to me, I started looking at this because I was looking at Wiley's experiment. Why would anyone feel so desperate? Why would you feel so desperate that the the way that you decided to run a test was to go direct to poisoning your fellow government workers, right? There has to be something that's really driving you there. So I started going back and saying, well, what's going on with the food supply? And so some of the stuff I'm gonna tell you about is from Wiley, but some of this, in particular milk, milk is a great case study uh, of what a a single sort of food object or food or drink object might have looked like before we had any rules about how it was handled. So milk in the 19th century, this is a um, cartoon by a very famous political cartoonist named Thomas Nash. <coughs> and it's a, a marketplace. And this was a lot of the ways that people got their milk. They would go to the marketplace, there would be a milk cellar with big containers of milk, they'd dip it out for you, you'd take it home. If you had money, sometimes it would be delivered Um, the delivered milk wasn't necessarily any better because here's what's going on in the dairy industry. One, um, dairymen, I actually have another cartoon of that. Uh, One of the most common practices for dairymen is that, and you see this here, here's the pure country milk, and then behind it are the uh, dairymen watering down the milk. So what happens in the 19th century Uh, to extend their profits, in general, dairymen would water the milk, right? And they actually had a formula. You would take the milk, you would skim off the cream, right, you would then water the milk, and there was a proportion, and when the milk, and you would get the milk, the milk in general, by the time they had watered it, was a kind of bluish grayish color. So then again, they would recolor it. The two most common things to recolor milk were uh, plaster and a chalk. And then once you had recolored the milk, if you wanted it to look like it, it was a little bit creamy, you could put in some lead chromate, the yellow dye, and give it a golden touch. And in Indiana, uh, where they were really vigilant about dairies in the ni- 1890s, they discovered that the dairymen had come up with a practice of, re- of faking cream by pureeing calf brains and they would float it on top of this reconstituted milk, and it would look just like cream. And I actually, I was reading the, um, there's a really wonderful book about public health in Indiana at this time period, in which they said the big problem was you'd pour your creamy milk into your coffee, and the calf brains would curdle in little lumps in your milk, right, and that was how you figured it out. So it was really gross. And the other thing they discovered in Indiana is a lot of times the, Water that they used, I mean, no one made any great effort for clean water. A family brought their, the milk that had been delivered to their house in the bottle because the bottle was wriggling at the bottom. And when they ran the analysis in the Indiana Public Health Department, they discovered that the dairyman had just gone down to the local pond and just sort of scooped out old stagnant pond water and mixed it into the milk. Again, this is completely legal, right? There is no rules for what you can put into milk. And so you get this, and because of the way this is done, you know, it's dirty. You have milk, which is, and milk, and this is before pasteurization, and before any really effective refrigeration, but especially before pasteurization, you had a lot of really, milk is a wonderful, substrate for bacteria to grow on. It's got a lot of sugars and a lot of proteins that bacteria love. And so you can get a a great sort of home for pathogenic bacteria. And in the 19th century, it was tuberculosis. We don't see that as much now. We see other pathogens in milk. But um, bovine tuberculosis was a huge deal back in the 19th century. So in these periods where you're seeing outbreaks of tuberculosis, sometimes it was just the milk, right? And so another thing then happens, which is that we were in the late 19th century and we see the rise of industrial chemistry. And after the Civil War, there was an embalming fluid that became completely, extremely popular, uh, and that was formaldehyde. Formaldehyde was the embalming fluid of choice during the Civil War. It became really well known as a good preservative for rotting tissues. And the dairymen, of the United States then said, well, you know, here's an interesting problem that we might have a solution for. We have milk that decomposes. It's not pasteurized, it's got a lot of bacteria, it rots, we don't have refrigeration. What if we actually used a preservative? And what about something like formaldehyde since it works so well? And so, in fact, they did do that. And and I wanna show you, this is actually uh, a newspaper story about a uh, formaldehyde-induced illness in Omaha, and you find these in newspapers across the country in the 19th century, Embalm milk scandals, and they call it embalm milk because they're using formaldehyde. And the big problem is there's no regulations, there's no standards for how much you, formaldehyde you can put into the milk. And you don't have to label anything, there's no requirements to label. So, and these formaldehyde formulas were never called formaldehyde. They were called preservaline, or rosaline, or icine was another one. But they were always innocuous names, even if they had been on the labels. And the dairymen followed a very simple calculation. If a little bit worked, a lot would work better. And so, at some points, you get to a situation where the milk is so full of formaldehyde that it really is toxic. So there were these embalmed milk outbreaks in which children would get sick or children would die. And in Indiana, one summer, I think it was about 1898, they had 400 children who died from embalmed milk poisoning. So, But again, no one is charged, because this is completely legal. There's nothing that says you have to safety test what you put in, into any food product. There's nothing that sets any standards for how much you can put in, and there's nothing that says you have to tell people what you're putting in food, right? All of those are basic consumer protection regulations um, that don't exist at this time. And so I wanted to show you just a couple more examples. Less lethal, some of the other compounds that were put in food at the time. Uh, borax, if you've ever seen 20-mule team borax, was a super popular food preservative. It was put in milk, butter, it was put in meat. Um, A lot of these were put in milk. They actually had an embalmed beef scandal after the Spanish-American War in which they had a a general who accused the army of killing more soldiers with food than the Spanish did during the war. Um, And the conclusion of that hearing was that, yes, the food was terrible, And the meat was disgusting. Um, Teddy Roosevelt testified, because he had fought in the Spanish-American War, that he would rather have eaten his hat than eaten the meat that was given to the soldiers. But they said, but it's okay because that's what we sell in the average American grocery store. So the army is nearly not responsible, because they're just giving the soldiers what everyone gets in the United States. So formaldehyde, they use copper sulfate to green vegetables. And they use salicylic acid as a preservative, especially in beer and wine. And so this is a component in aspirin. So, and the problem with salicylic acid, of course, is it causes the lining of your gastrointestinal tract to bleed. Right? That's why we buffer aspirin. And so all of these things are going into the food supply. None of them are labeled. None of no one knows exactly how much. And the other thing that is going on in this unregulated period of the 19th century is you see this huge rise in in food fraud and food fakery. We still see this today. You know, there's a lot of issues about things like olive oil. Is it really olive oil? Is it dyed green? Cottonseed oil, right? But it was much crazier then. So you see here, and I just put this up there. Um, that you started seeing <coughs> whiskey makers put not blended, not adulterated in their advertising because so much whiskey was faked at the time. And, and what that really meant was that, in, say this is rye, right? But what the whiskey fakers would do is they would make ethanol. So ethanol is the alcohol that we drink, right? It's the intoxicating alcohol in wine and beer. You get it from, you know, rolling golden waves of grain. You get it from grapes. If you ferment organic material like grapes and uh, corn and potatoes for vodka, you're gonna get ethanol. And they discovered in the 19th century, (coughs) sorry, it's this airplane cough. Um, They discovered in the 19th century that they could um, just synthesize it in the laboratory, skip the plants, and just make it in giant vats in a laboratory. It's basically a chain of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. And so what they would do is they'd brew up these big vats of synthetic ethanol called neutral spirits, then they'd dye them. Then there is actually, you can find catalogs from the 19th century for things like essence of rye um, and then they'd flavor them to be the different liquors. And then they would sell them like they were aged 20-year-old bottles of whiskey. So, you start seeing the people who are making old-fashioned, handmade, sour straight, pure, rye, whiskey, um, trying to let people know that this is not fake. Uh, coffee, when Wiley did his study of coffee, he found American coffee <laughs> was about almost never coffee, right? I'm not actually sure what nutritive coffee is, but but they, but they one of the things that people would do is they would kind of be, well, it's not quite coffee, so it doesn't have to contain coffee, right? <laughs> and you would see things sold under the name coffee with a K, and that didn't have to have any coffee in it, right? Because it wasn't coffee. And so some of the things that they found when they were testing in coffee they would find a bone, charred bone, ground up, charred rope, right? Sawdust, dyed black, right? So you know, just an incredible amount of ground things. There were some of the big purveyors would buy a coconut shells by the ton and grind them up and put them into spices or put them into coffee. And then what happened was people started getting a little bit mistrustful of ground coffee. So they started faking coffee beans. And so you could act, and what's really interesting about this is the two most common ways to make coffee beans were dirt and wax in a mold that looked like a coffee bean, or just clay. And they would make these fake coffee beans. And, and it wasn't as if you just bought a bag of clay. These were extenders, right? They would mix them into the coffee. Um, And and they would send out, the companies that made the fake coffee beans would actually send out circulars to grocers and purveyors of fine goods and, and basically say, you know, buy our special K coffee beans that you can mix in and we can triple your profits. And you see this not only with coffee, but with a lot of other products. For instance, there was a lot of extenders put in flour, the two most popular. Or gypsum, which we use, as you know, in wallboard, and and sometimes other ground stones. And again, you can find these advertising circulars where they're saying to the people who sell flour, just mix in a little gypsum, and you know, you'll be a lot richer. And, and again, you can do that because this is completely legal. So, and spices, by the way, Wiley did a whole report on spices. Some of them were 100% adulterated. Um, and uh, the most popular use of, uh, what, what else went into spices? Ground seashells. Oh, and in cinnamon and cayenne, it was brick dust. So uh, I've always wondered. There was a guy who wrote about the coffee, coffee problem, and he said he had decided that the origin of the American phrase, a muddy cup of coffee, have you ever heard that phrase? It was because people were drinking so much mud in their coffee. Um, So I've always wondered what things actually tasted like in the 19th century, which was a century that I used to imagine full of nothing but healthy food. But like, if you were flavoring your chili with brick dust, say, what did it actually taste like? If your coffee was full of dirt and wax, what did it actually taste like? I started really wondering what this was like. Uh, I wanted to mention also that in this period, this was the first iteration of Coca-Cola, which, as you know, began as a cocaine-based drink, which is why it's called Coca-Cola. And before it was uh, the Coca-Cola Company was purchased by the Candler Company. Uh, this guy, John Pem- Pemberton in Atlanta, invented Coca-Cola. If, if you can read some of this, it's the intellectual beverage. And it's a temperance drink, it doesn't contain alcohol, but it does have the valuable tonic and nerve stimulant properties of the coca plant, right? So, and this is in a period where what they called medicinal soft drinks were extremely popular. So 7-Up, for instance, contained lithium, um, right? And the cocaine was used in many, many soft drinks. The Coca-Cola company took it out in the early 20th century under a lot of pressure, right? They didn't want to. Um, and what they did instead, and, and they and Wiley, my guy, eventually sued them over that, is they ramped up the amount of caffeine in the Coca-Cola. So the estimate is that if you got a little glass, like a six ounce glass of Coke, right? It was about the same as a 20 ounce can of Red Bull today with the amount of caffeine and they marketed it to small children, children would go down to these soda fountains. So eventually the federal government sued Coca-Cola and in, I think it was 1917, Coca-Cola settled and they dropped the amount of caffeine by half. Um, Although they've probably brought it back up since then. Um, and, And there were other things like this, morphine in kids medicine, right? There was just, so you have both the problem with what you with you know snake oil medicine and, and these kind of remedies, and you have the problem with fake food, and so this is Wiley's poison squad, and so he goes, he persuades Congress to give him five thousand dollars, which was a lot more money than it is now in 1902, and he creates these experiments with these young men here. Um, And what they did is they just advertised, we're going to run an experiment. Here's how it's going to work. We will give you three free meals a day, seven days a week. And we will hire, and they did, I'll just show it to you, a professional chef from a fancy hotel who will weigh and measure everything and, in fact, the food that they used. Was great. They was all you know. They went to local farms. It was true farm-to-table food. They none of the food could have preservatives, right? And so, and the deal was though you would get three free meals a day. They built this dining room in a basement in the agriculture department. And they built a kitchen, so it was like a, a rooming boarding house of sorts, rooming house. Um, and these guys would come, they would eat these meals, they had to agree not to eat anything else. They couldn't go out for a casual beer, they couldn't eat or drink anything that came, didn't come from this kitchen. They had to be tested all the time, blood tests, urine tests, right? They were weighed, they brought in samples, they uh, were tested by doctors, all of these things. And the other thing they had to do is they would sit at these tables with these amazing meals And in any given case, one table would just be eating the glorious farm-to-table dinner, and the other table would be eating that, plus little capsules of whatever compound that Wiley was testing at the moment. And what was really interesting, so one of the reasons he does this, why does he does He sits down and he deliberately poisons these young men. Right. And these guys stay in these uh, experiments for weeks and even months. Right, and they ratchet up the dose of these different additives, trying to see if they have a health effect. And there's really no testing of these things at the time. And so these guys sit there, and they actually had a sign in front of this, I couldn't find a good picture of it, but they had hand-painted a sign that said, only the brave dare eat the fair, right? Um, And they really saw themselves as doing a public service. They got volunteer People wrote them from all over the country. Put me in your, I have a cast iron stomach. Take me, take me, right? I want to do this for the, you know, I want to know what's going on. And he starts doing these experiments. He'd actually called them a hygienic table trial. And uh, the Washington Post, which had a reporter who was truly fascinated by this, nicknamed it the poison squad. And Wiley, when he testified to Congress about the first experiment, He said he actually had, he had started with borax. It was super popular and widely used, and he hadn't expected it to be all that bad. And then these men started getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And they got really sick by the end of the experiment. And when he went and testified before Congress, he said, I didn't see that coming. I picked the most benign thing to start. And he said, I was converted by my own experiments into saying this has got to stop. I mean, he had done lots of other things to try to stop it, but this for him was the breaking point. And so the other thing that happens here is that for the first time, this is getting huge national coverage, right, the Poison Squad is front page news, <coughs> there's songs written about it, there's minstrel shows, It's an, theater it's like getting all kinds of national attention and basically as they go through each of these compounds every story is saying by the way your food is poisoning you every day right and there actually was a move among some Americans to quit buying manufactured food and you know do home canning again um, and so now you're starting to get people being really outraged but American corporations really fought against all efforts to regulate. They put huge amounts of money into stopping it. They, yeah, <laughs> I know you're surprised, right? So they did their very best to ruin Wiley's reputation. They planted people in the federal government to try to get him fired and almost made that happen you see this real pushback by industry. They don't want to be regulated. This has been a golden age of making whatever you wanted, and they don't want the government. And they would say this, you know, what, are we going to let this chemist police your kitchen? Or is, you know, are we going to let the federal government tell, take our rights to eat whatever we want away? You, and, and they would, you know, drive up these interest groups. So actually nothing happens until and Wiley is out promoting, this is obvious publicity still, right? He's out really pushing this, nothing is happening. The newspapers are super sympathetic to this. I don't know if you can read this, but it's old Doc Wiley, sure cure for all adulterations, fact, fake foods and uh, quack remedies. There's enormous amount of attention being given to this, and nothing happens until I actually love this. This is a postcard made by uh, the Swift Company. They were meat packers based in Chicago, and it's very romantic looking, actually, I think. So here's what happens. Almost everyone here probably has heard the story of the jungle. Um, And so Wiley's poison squad experiments run from about 1902 to close to 1905, with people desperately trying to get some regulation and failing, right? I mean, it's really amazing to read The pushback and the newspaper descriptions of the time. And then what happens is in 1905 actually Upton Sinclair serial does a serial publication of a book called The Jungle and Upton Sinclair is a freelance writer. He's really poor being really poor has led him to become a socialist. Right. He has a total sympathy for the underpaid worker. And he reads about a book, a butcher strike in Chicago that was like beaten to dust by the Packers. And he is just enraged. And he actually writes to uh, the editor of a newspaper in Kansas. Kansas was a hotbed of socialism in the early 20th century. It, there were more socialists in Kansas than almost any other country, I mean state, it's hard to believe, and they published the leading national socialist national newspaper which was called Appeal to Reason. So Upton Sinclair, who lives in New York, writes to this editor in Kansas, he sells him a story about the strike, and then he writes him back, because he's an, also a novelist, and he says, I'd like to do a novel based on the struggle of the meat workers in Chicago. And, and as you've probably heard this quote, he later famously said uh, that when he wrote The Jungle, he had aimed for America's heart and instead hit it in the stomach. Um, and so he goes, and, but this is what makes The Jungle so powerful. Upton Sinclair goes to Chicago. He lives in a settlement house that was owned by a friend of Jane Addams, who is a very famous settlement house worker and leader and pioneer. <coughs> and he's so poor, he wanders the stockyards and fits right in. People can't even tell him from an underpaid meatpacking worker because he's just as shabby as they are. And so he spends weeks taking notes and gathering information. And he writes this book, but, what, but the book is just not his invention of what it's like. It's got all these details, and the details are really horrible, right? Uh, I mean, the jungle... There's actually no evidence that workers fell into the sausage-making pits and ended up in American lard around the country, as he certainly implies, in the jungle. But a lot of the stuff that's in the jungle describing the process, the rotting meat and other, the blood-spattered walls, the mold growing on things that are then given borax baths and shipped out, all of the horrible details, those were real. And so he writes this book. It runs as a serial novel in Appeal to Reason. He uh, has a publisher, Macmillan, and his editor at Macmillan is like, this book sucks, right? It's full of this horrible, gruesome detail. I hate it, and none of my friends like it either. And Macmillan cancels his contract. So at the end of 1905, all he has is a novel that's been published in a socialist newspaper. And he has lost his New York publisher. And so he takes his book and put literally puts it in a briefcase and knocks. You couldn't do this now, right? They'd be, where's your agent? But uh, back in the day, you could just go publisher to publisher. So he goes, he knocks on publisher's door, and, and he ends up at a publishing house called Doubleday Page, which we know now as Doubleday. And um, he, get, he meets with a young editor who lo- reads And he just tells them, just read it. And the editor takes it home and reads it, and he says, you know, I think I could do something with this. And so he talks um, Walter Page and Frank Doubleday into buying the book. And they see, and they read the book, and they say, oh, this can't be true, right? This is wrong, this can't be true. And they sent it, they sent the manuscript to the Chicago Tribune, and the Chicago Tribune, which was very cozy with the meatpacking industry, sends it to a worker for the meatpacking industry to review. And they send <laughs> double page back this long analysis saying, no, 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 no. Everything is pristine and perfect in the Chicago meatpacking yards, and this is all nonsense. And so they decide to cancel the book. And, and poor Upton Sinclair goes down, I mean, literally with bags of books and medical things, medical um, journal articles. And he walks them through everything that he has done and shows that the Chicago Tribune response cannot be factually correct. right? And so they say, OK, we'll fact check your book. This is actually what I think people don't realize is so interesting about The Jungle, is that it's fact checking and, and it's journalistic underpinnings that made it so powerful. It's a good novel. I mean, It's a very theatrical novel. But it, But more than that, it's rock solid based in reality. So Doubleday Page send the editor and their lawyer to Chicago. And they come back, and they say, oh my god, it's worse. It's worse than in the novel, right? It's just terrible. And so they say to him, "Okay, we're going to publish this book. We're cutting out 60,000 words of your ridiculous socialist preaching. And so they publish The Jungle, and they send a copy to Teddy Roosevelt. Roosevelt reads it, and he goes, oh, this can't be right, right? So he sends his own investigators to Chicago, and they come back, and they say to him, it's so much worse than in the book. And they draft this report. I mean, when you read this report, you, I mean, you almost have, you have to sit down, and, and it's just... So horrifying, the descriptions of the meatpacking industry. Doesn't look anything like this, (laughs) right? It's really just, I actually just realized I talked past the original cover of The Jungle and a picture of Upton Sinclair. And it's so bad that Roosevelt goes to the members of Congress, many of whom have gotten a lot of money from the packing industry, and he says, you know, you're gonna have to change this. This is really bad, and they don't want to. So he, he blackmails them with the report. He says, if you don't do something, I'm going to release this report. And they say, fine, right? We're still not going to do anything. And so then what happens is he releases about eight pages out of the uh, report. And it causes such an international scandal that countries across Europe cancel their contracts or make contracts with the US. I think I've got here. Uh, This is from uh, Puck, which is a satirical magazine in England, and so here's their, this has just happened, here's the Chicago Beef Trust, looking incredibly trustworthy. Um, And here's Roosevelt, I really love this cartoon, trying to deal with the meat scandal. And so Roosevelt says to them, We've got to fix this. And so in the summer of 1906, the Meat Inspection Act passes. And that is a direct result of the jungle. Uh, It's completely defanged by industry at the last moment. They maneuvered to defund inspections, and they did that very successfully. And they're actually, in the original bill, there was a, a, we added this later, uh, there was supposed to be date stamping of meat, and they took that out. Right? So the bill was not what it was, but it passed. And about a week later, the food and drug law passed. This law that Wiley has been trying to get for years and advocating for and testing for. And here's what's really important about this moment. These are not great laws. There's all kinds of problems with the food and drug law as well. But this is the first time that the US government has said, yes, among our responsibilities is protection of American consumers they had fought that tooth and nail up into this moment so this is a paradigm shifting moment these two laws they laid down the foundation of consumer protection in the united states they set the precedent upon which everything else from osha which regulates workplace safety to the epa which regulates sort of environmental protection All of those agencies are built on this moment, where you have the government for the first time saying, "Okay, we don't want to, but we really say, when we read, this is the way I see it, the line in the preamble of the American Constitution that says promote the general welfare, this is what it means. It means we are promoting the general welfare of the average American citizen every day. We have a right in this country to have safe food and drink. And we have a right for the government to stand for us and try to make that happen. And so this lays down the legal precedent. Both of these laws are, need to be updated and, and, and are updated. In 1938, the Food and Drug Law became the, the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act of 1938. And that law created the FDA. Until 1938, we did not have the FDA. And this was a flawed law but a lot of manufacturers leapt on it at that moment. So you start seeing ads like this, is your vinegar pure, right? The vinegar of this kind made in the United States, and it'll go on and on and on and tell you that, you know, now you can buy safe vinegar uh, if you uh, are buying Heinz vinegar. So you start seeing after the food and drug law passed, businesses, and Heinz is really interesting because, Heinz, the uh, Harry Hines who founded the Hines Company, actually was the got involved in safe food before the law passed, and to do that, he reinvented ketchup. I actually wrote, just wrote a piece about this for National Geographic, which is coming out in February. And I'm always saying to my friends, I have written a ketchup masterpiece, which I never thought I would say, who writes ketchup masterpieces? And yet, I have written the story of Harry Hines, um, Henry J. Hines, uh, in which to make ketchup without preservatives, they had to reinvent ketchup, so ketchup, in the 19th century, was a thin, kind of watery sauce. A lot of it involved rotting vegetation, um, pumpkin rinds, apple scraps, dyed red, heavily preserved because it was in such bad shape. Um, And so Heinz said, well, what would we have to do to make a ketchup that didn't need a preservative? And his chemists actually sat down and realized they need a lot of pulp and they needed a lot of acid to kill the bacteria. And so they actually invented, this thick ketchup we see today was invented at this moment, right? When we're trying to figure out how to do preservative free food. It wasn't all altruistic and he said that, right? He could see Americans starting to make their own ketchup again and he wanted to stop that. So, but it was still really interesting. (laughs) So Wiley goes on. What, what happens to Wiley is that everyone is so pissed off at him um, after the Food and Drug Act passed, and he also gets, and I won't talk about that, but what, the other thing that's really interesting about these two laws is they lay down consumer protection and they also lay down the complete corruption of that consumer protection almost instantly so that you can really look at the way government is holding hands with industry behind the scenes in not just the passage of the law but how it's enforced. And Wiley gets into so many fights. He was completely um, unbending about consumer protection. It was consumer or nothing. And this eventually gets him in so much trouble with the government that he leaves the government and he goes over to uh, Good Housekeeping, which is a crusading magazine of the time. He starts the Good Housekeeping test laboratories, invents the Good Housekeeping seal of approval, and um, actually is so rigorous about this at Good Housekeeping that if people don't pass his test and get the approval, they can't advertise in the magazine. And it's amazing to me that the magazine would let him do that. right? Um, And he wrote a column, Common Mistakes About Food, Um, during the 1920s and crusaded relentlessly for better food, better eating habits, safer food, right? Getting bleach out of flour was one of his causes, right? Um, Having um, corn syrup called corn syrup instead of corn sugar, which the corn industry was working on even there, even then. Um, And so this is um, uh, in the good old days when postage stamps cost three cents. This is the commemorative stamp from that. So the last thing I want to say, I think I just now go to the cover of the book again, is the other thing that's, as you can probably tell when I tell the story, is it has a lot of resonance today. Uh, unfortunately, we're in a period where we're actually trying to preserve even these antiquated regulations. Uh, the Trump administration, for instance, has proposed, and this is uh, um, through some lobbying with the beef industry, has proposed taking some of the food regulation away from FDA and moving it back to the Department of Agriculture, uh, which is much more agribusiness friendly. And so that's in process at the moment. We, The FDA is really fighting it, but we're seeing these efforts to roll back these regulations. The Food Safety Modernization Act, which uh, was passed up Obama to update some of these rules, um, has been frozen in place, and, and also funding has been killed for almost all the innovative parts of it. So we don't, in this country, do what Europe does. Europe uses the precautionary principle and the precautionary principle is we have a body of evidence that shows that this compound could cause harm. So we're going to take it out of the food supply or the cosmetic supply and we're, until we can be absolutely sure that it's not gonna harm the consumer. And so the FDA it does not do that. We don't use a precautionary principle in this country. We actually use something called generally recognized as safe if you go to the FDA website, you'll see this, it's the "grass standard, which basically says this has been in the food supply for a long time, it, no one has dropped out in the street, so now it's generally regulated, recognized as safe, and we're just not, and we're gonna just not really uh, do any serious safety testing of that. So you see, for instance, with something like titanium dioxide, which was, has been in cosmetics for a long time, is now moved into food, because it didn't kill people. It's, it's in sunscreen. Um, because it didn't kill people in cosmetics, we don't test it for its safety in food. It's generally recognized as safe. So the, our consumer protections are still pretty thin, right? We need to fight to keep the ones we have. I really believe that. And I would like to fi- close with my current crusade <laughs> for better labels <laughs> because labels are really uh, not nearly. They're, we have them, right? They won't tell you everything you need to know. Have you ever picked up a label and seen it say something like natural flavoring? Yeah. Well, what do you think those are, right? right. The, is this is a deal between the government and business. They don't have to tell you. Um, or if you've ever picked up a label, is a filler cellulose? Have you ever seen cellulose? About 90% of that is wood pulp. So my own feeling is what the label should say is wood pulp, and I'd like it to identify the tree, <laughs> right? Am I eating oak? Am I eating pine? What am I actually eating? Right? Cellulose is a meaningless term, and that again is a uh, behind-the-scenes deal between the government and industry. You know they don't want to tell you that it's pine, right? They want cellulose doesn't mean anything to people. So, I've started saying, you know, it, it's not fair to say, well, we should be informed consumers and then just not, not give us the information that informs us, right? So, it's not just that I want to protect the regulations we have, but I want them to be better, right? And I want people to remember, and this is really one of the lessons of my book, that back in the so called good old days when we had no regulations, food was not great. We were not safe. We do not want to go back there. So with the previous book I did, the uh, Poisoner's Handbook, which was about forensic toxicology, was a documentary on PBS called The Poisoner's Handbook. Um, so arsenic's really interesting. In the 19th century, arsenic was widely known as the inheritance powder um, because it was a perfect poison in the 19th century. So what's a perfect poison? A lot of these additives will. You know, food additives don't taste. And arsenic is tasteless and it's odorless. So you have a poison, it's tasteless and odorless, so it's not gonna give you any warning. It mimics natural illness. Arsenic is a broad spectrum. Poison at the acute level, it actually, if you geek out about this kind of thing, uh, it disrupts cellular metabolism. and it. But what you'll get is a gastroenteritis. You don't feel well, you've got an upset stomach. And in the early 19th century, uh, there was no test for any poison in a corpse. The way that they would try to determine if someone had poison is to feed the last meal to the dog. And if the dog died, they made a presumption of poison. The person who changed that was a British chemist, James Marsh, in about 1840. And he got a absolute obsessive quest to find arsenic in a body. And he was able to do that in the 1840s. And what's really interesting, if you look at homicidal history, is that poisoners start, then start using plant poisons because they're not detectable. And we did not learn how to detect plant poisons in a corpse until, I want to say about 1870. And the first plant poison or plant alkaloid was nicotine, uh, which was came out of a famous murder case in Belgium, um, in which a a man murdered his brother-in-law for his money by stewing up tobacco leaves. Um, And so you see, and then when we get industrial chemicals, we have the same problem. Brand new chemical formula, how do you find it? I don't know how to find it, right? Um, and, And we do know how to detect most of these now. The tricky thing, bringing it back to something like arsenic in food is now we're talking about low-dose toxicology, and that's a very different, so just really quickly. Arsenic at a very toxic level, which is like a couple of teaspoons maybe, a couple of teaspoons of arsenic will kill you, and it'll kill you that day, right? But arsenic at the kind of levels that we find in food, which is part per billion or part per million, works very differently in the body, and it turns out, this is what makes it so tricky, that arsenic at these very low dust levels is just corrosive at a cellular level. So if you look at levels in arsenic in in drinking food, um, the EPA standard for arsenic in drinking water is 10 parts per billion. It was 50 parts per billion in the 20th century. And and under Clinton, they moved, they did a, a bunch of analysis, and they said, man, 50 is way too high let's move it to 10. And when George W. Bush came in, he said, we're not gonna impose this unreasonable standard, we're gonna do our own research. And so the Bush administration did their own research with arsenic, and they uh, realized that what it really needed to be was three, but they made an economic, brokered an economic compromise. A lot of, um, uh, you know, cities and utilities didn't, water utilities didn't feel like they could get it down to uh, to three. And so in the United States, it's 10. And if you actually go and look at the EPA documents on that, they calculate the number of additional American deaths because of that difference. So so what's going on there? So arsenic at the part per billion level, and I'm going to get to food in a minute, Arsenic at the part per billion level is corrosive to certain kinds of cells. It damages immune system cells. It damages cardiovascular cells. And it damages them at these levels. If you get up to about a part per million of arsenic in drinking water, there was a famous case in Taiwan, an outbreak of what they call Blackfoot disease because they had arsenic in their well water. It was naturally occurring. Arsenic's a naturally occurring element. It was arsenic in their drinking water at about a part per million, and it was so corrosive to people's circular system that they developed gangrene, um, and it just broke down, right? At, at the levels we get in the United States, it's, an, un, it's a, an underlying factor in cardiovascular disease. We haven't figured that out entirely, but we know from looking at, again, naturally occurring arsenic at well water in Bangladesh that people there who, <laughs> Live on a diet of rice, vegetables, and fish, have rising levels of cardiovascular disease related to arsenic in the water. So, arsenic, I mean, it's related to some cancers as well, but they're fairly specific. But the cardiovascular link is really strong and really troubling. So, what happens is arsenic's a naturally occurring element. There is one grain. There is a natural vacuum of metallic elements, arsenic's metalloid, and that's rice. The rice plant is, has a really sophisticated transporter system for removing metals from soils. It's not a hyperaccumulator, but it will pick up cadmium and it will pick up arsenic. And so in areas where there's naturally occurring arsenic, or in areas like the American South where we used to use arsenic pesticides, lead arsenate and calcium arsenates were the preferred pesticides before we developed things like DDT, chlorinated hydrocarbons and the organophosphate pesticides. And you can actually go in Wisconsin where I used to live. They have arsenic maps of the state where you're not supposed to plant things related to when they used to plaster Wisconsin with arsenic pesticides. We grow a lot of rice in the south in areas where we used to grow cotton and those were loaded with arsenic pesticides, and, so, and there is also arsenic related to the Mississippi River Delta in that area, and so arsenic grown in the American South is really, I mean, rice grown in the American South is, re, is really high in arsenic. There, you can see this on the FDA. The FDA has pages about arsenic in rice. The FDA, about three years ago, made a strong recommendation that parents quit feeding their kids rice cereal, because arsenic causes cognitive problems and they did not want children to be fed rice cereal on a regular basis. I say this as someone who fed both my children absolute tanker truckloads worth of rice cereal when they were little. And, but there is that information too. And under the Obama administration, the FDA was moving to set a safety limit on arsenic in food in the United States and that died the minute Trump came into office But you can, so you can find all of that information there, but you cannot find any action. So the other thing about having regulations is you actually have to use them, right? So, and that's a real problem with, I mean, it's not like you're gonna eat rice today and drop dead on the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. And it's not like, there's some wonderful work uh, done at places like Dartmouth College, especially looking at where they have a lot of Naturally occurring arsenic in well water up in New England, there's an arsenic belt. There's one in Wisconsin, too, um, where they actually, there's whole areas where you're just not supposed to use the well water in Wisconsin because of the naturally occurring arsenic. Um, But they've actually looked at some of this cognitive stuff, effect on the immune system. Children of moms who are drinking a lot of arsenic-rich water get a lot sicker, they can trace that to specific immune system damage. Do we want the government to actually set some limits? Well, yeah, sure. Right, we actually do. And so there's the other part of being an informed consumer, right? How much arsenic should I eat every day? How much rice should I eat every day, right? What should I, you know, what should I give up? How do I be an informed consumer when the government is not testing and telling me these things, right? Or industry isn't. So I'm gonna close on my best advice on low-dose toxicology, which is what I practice, Don't eat the same thing every day. Don't sit down with the same, don't have the same breakfast cereal every day. Don't eat the same thing every day because the one thing we know from low dose toxicology is these tiny amounts do damage if they're repeated. right? So uh, uh, arsenic cycles out of your body in two days. So you could eat a vat of rice on Tuesday. (laughs) You wouldn't want to, but you could eat a vat of rice on, Tuesday, and by Saturday, the arsenic would be out of your system. Don't eat the same thing every day. Variety really is the spice of life, and that is really good advice from me, Miss Poison, to you. (laughs) Thanks, guys.
0: That wraps up our Dakota Public Library Galaxy event with Deborah Bloom, and that will wrap up our fall 2018 club book season. Make sure to check back with us in February as we announce our spring 2009 season lineup with more great authors. Podcasts of previous discussions can be found on our website and iTunes, so if you have a minute, check them out. Over the past 10 seasons, we have had some incredible writers speak about their work, their process, and their journey. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons. Sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubbookMN. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.